Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. May these words in my mouth and this meditation on my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You may be seated. (laughs) So I was that kid who read all the time. I read in the car with my mom driving. My dad would catch me by the nightlight reading late at night. Um, as a kid, I loved fantasy books, especially Madeline Lingle. Yeah, yeah. And when I was trying to decide between being an English major or a psychology major, I confess that one of the huge reasons was because I would be forced to read great works of literature rather than a textbook. Um, I used to teach middle school English. I still love YA books. I read, I just finished the Shadow and Bone series that Zach recommended to me. I read all the Rick Riordan books, or at least the Percy Jackson series, and I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. I can so enjoy a book where the author pulls together threads and different parts of them, and it fits together in a really satisfying ending. But unlike Zach, who can reread Rick Riordan books and and, uh, Harry Potter, what, you've read them at least 20 times each, I think. Yes. Um, I can't read a book a second time. The magic is kind of gone for me. Um, but there's one book that never bores me, and that is scripture. We often forget that scripture is literature, but so much more than that. It has history and theology in it, too. But because it is God-breathed, every time I read a passage that I think I know well, I find something new. It's like finding a buried treasure. And even though sometimes I write down these revelations and think, duh, of course that's there, I'm still amazed at each layer. It's like the veil being lifted from my eyes. How did I not see that before? Maybe I'm in a different emotional state or my circumstances have changed or I'm older. But each time I open a passage, something new jumps out at me. Or often I'm in a group reading scripture and someone says something they notice about the passage that offers clarity or newness to the passage that I haven't understood before. Sometimes I notice a symbol or a concept that keeps popping up from Genesis to Revelation. How do 66 different books make a coherent story with similar themes and symbolism running through it without the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Those kinds of interactions make me fall in love with his word all over again. So where are we in our story in Acts, um, and how do we fit into this narrative? So to recap, Alan started us off in Acts 15. This is, this is actually um, a mosaic from a, a triptych in Berea. So this is the Macedonian man in Paul's dream calling them to come help us. And Father Benjamin preached on Acts 16, which includes Lydia, the, the conversion of Lydia of Philippi, the enslaved girl who set who is set free from her demon. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. They convert their jailer, and the authorities ask them to leave. They head on to Thessalonica. Buddy guided us through last week, where they preach the gospel and turn the world upside down. So in our passage today, the community in Thessalonica sends Paul and Silas away at night to avoid the authorities. 
You'll notice that this short passage, <clears throat> excuse me, begins and ends with Paul being sent by the brothers for his own safety. In this series, we are considering what it looks like to be sent ones. And in most of these instances, the apostles are not so much sent as compelled by persecution to leave, and they spread the gospel wherever they go. So in today's passage, I want to consider how the Bereans respond to the gospel message because of their dedication to their holy scriptures and how we might learn also to be equipped through the formation of scripture and community in our sending out, so to speak. Berea was probably not on the list of cities that Paul intended to go to. Um, it's off the main Roman highway. It's 25 miles from the coast. And it's possible Paul and Silas ended up there as a way to shake off the, Th the Thessalonians who, who were coming after them. Yet here they arrive in a city where the local community is ripe for conversion. Sorry. <laughs> We've seen this pattern a couple of times now. Paul and his companions enter a new city. They preach the gospel at the synagogue. Jews and Gentiles of all social stratospheres and genders respond to the message. A riot breaks out, and Paul and the others have to flee. So let's turn to these simple five simple verses in Acts 17, 10 through 15. And I want to focus on one verse in particular. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Berean Jews they encountered in the synagogue respond eagerly and examine the scriptures daily. We may be tempted to think that they're reading the gospel or the New Testament, but those haven't been written yet. So what they're reading are the scriptures of the law and the prophets and the Psalms of the Old Testament. And let's be honest, we don't really like to read the Old Testament. After all, it's old and we have a New Testament. I like new things, don't you? The Old Testament can be weird and have rules and laws that seem archaic. Or we may fall into the category that my professor Don Collett calls the Bing Crosby approach to the Old Testament. Thanks for the memories. The Old Testament is just a means to understanding the new one. Did you know that the word testament also means witness? So the Old Testament is also a separate and equal witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are at least 282 direct quotes from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and some scholars have suggested that there are as many as 933 direct quotes, allusions, or possible allusions to the Old Testament. Because Jesus was in the beginning with God the Father and the Spirit, and through him all things were made, the pattern of his life and death, his character, how he loves us, is woven all through the Old Testament. We know that the Old Testament is a witness to Jesus Christ because Jesus himself tells us this. Let's look at Luke 24, 27. This is the road to Emmaus story where some of Jesus' followers are walking home after his crucifixion, and they're contemplating the rumors that Jesus is risen from the dead. They don't recognize Jesus, but he comes to them and he begins to speak to them. And Luke tells us in verse 27, he says, and beginning with Moses and, all the, and the, all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself teaches them how to read and interpret the Old Testament 
And this interpretation that reveal, that Jesus reveals to them that the Messiah must suffer, die, and rise again shows up all throughout the preaching of Acts. You'll see it, Paul's use of it, the Old Testament and his letters. And, um, and in Jason's sermon next week, you'll see how he uses it in Athens. You'll see it in the Gospels, the letters, and even in Revelation. So if you don't read the Old Testament, you miss all these symbols and themes God uses throughout Scripture to reveal himself, to reveal Jesus to you. If you don't know the law, how do you know how Jesus fulfills the law? If you don't know about the tabernacle and the temple and God's dwelling with his people, then how do you understand how and why Jesus tabernacled with us? If you don't know the Old Testament view of kingship and righteousness, how do you know what kind of king Jesus comes to be or what kind of reign he will have? If you haven't met the good shepherd of the Old Testament, not just the one in Psalm 23, then how will you recognize Jesus, the good shepherd? The Old Testament is worth our time. So how often do you read the Old Testament? How has it shaped your view of Jesus Christ? So Paul introduces the good news that Jesus is the Christ to these Jews at the synagogue. And they respond with readiness and examining the scriptures daily. I don't know about you, but I'm rarely consistently praying every day and reading my Bible every day. It's usually one or the other. But why does reading scripture daily matter? It matters because scripture shapes us. It changes our hearts and our minds. It fills our mouths with the language of scripture and our minds with the thoughts of scripture. The word of God is transformative. It is through this renewal of mind from examining scriptures daily that these Jews and some God-fearing Greek men and women come to believe that Jesus is their Messiah. I do think sometimes when I've been encouraged to pray and read every day, read scripture every day, that the bar gets set a little too high. I've been told I need to give the best part of my day to the Lord which implies if I don't give the best part of my day, maybe I shouldn't even bother. Or I should get up at five o'clock in the morning and find a quiet place and light candles and play worship music. If someone in here does set their alarm for 5 a.m. to pray, will you please put me on your prayer list because I need it really bad. But seriously, I can't tell you how discouraging those rules are for reading scripture and praying can be to a young mom, or especially if you've been up all night with a sick child, or a student staying up all night reading a, writing a paper. I have to get up at 5 a.m. to be a good Christian? The point is not what time you do it, or for how long, or how much you read. It's just forming the habit. There are so many things that compete with our time and attention. I waste so much time scrolling through Instagram. Thank you, Elizabeth. (laughs) Or tooling around on the internet. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And of course, oh, I'm so sorry. Just like other things that we form having a new habit, we have 
to set aside the time to do it, whether it's exercise or eating right. And of course, goodness gracious, um, whether it's reading just a chapter or a psalm when you wake up or at lunch or before you go to bed. I've done it at all different times, depending on the season of my life. And of course, there have been seasons and times where I haven't done it consistently. So one thing I'm going to challenge myself to do, and maybe you could join me, is I want to read a little bit of the Old Testament and a little bit of the New Testament every day. So let me show you something cool with the prayer book. Um, Benjamin's teaching a class in the prayer book, but I'm stealing this from him. If you look in the back of the prayer book, there's this cool thing where it has each month and the day, and it actually lists different scriptures that you can read every day. There's an Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms. Um, so that's what I'm going to use, and I hope you'll join me. I'm going to do it for the month of October, and hopefully it'll stick. And maybe you could join me. Um, and the readings are in order, which is good, because then you kind of get the flow of the chapter, and you know it's not as likely for you to take things out of context. Um, so there are other great resources in the prayer book. There are prayers on that you can read before you read scripture. There are prayers for the desire to pray and read scripture. Um, so I hope you'll join me doing that. And maybe we can connect with each other and the Anglican Church worldwide. And when we read scripture together, we form a community that is rooted in truth. So in our passage, Luke tells us that the Jews in Berea were not just reading scripture, but they were examining the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, daily to see if these things were so. Now, this word examine in Greek can be translated engage in careful inquiry, ask questions about, or investigate. It is not a cursory reading of the Bible. It is deep engagement with the scriptures. Reading and examining scripture takes time and effort. It's good to do alone during your quiet time, and it's even better to do with a group of people through a study. Even though we are accustomed to reading the Bible alone, almost no one did that in the first century. They almost always read together as a community, like we see in this passage. The Jews are examining and inquiring together. They are asking each other the hard questions and digging deeper. They are probably getting input from elders who know the Torah better than they do, or from people who have more education. I still think part of the reason that Alan suggested that I go to seminary was that I'd stop asking questions. <laughs> I can find it out myself. So where are you grappling with scripture with a group of Christians? Are you in a community group? Did you try out a growth series over the summer or want to tackle another one? Also, did you know how many PhDs in theology and biblical studies we have walking around this building every Sunday? We have so many doctorates that we have even started a seminary cohort in seminary classes being taken and taught through Trinity School of Ministry, where I'm taking classes, to teach classes that take a more thorough look into scripture. Are there great resources outside of this church? There's Bible study fellowship or community Bible study, precept class or the Bible project. Are we going to, yeah, ask your kids. They probably know more than you do. And part of the reason I encourage you to pursue deep study is because we can be easily deceived when we are not continuously renewing our minds with God's word. Let's face it. We want the easy option. 
We would rather read the new great book that all our Christian friends are reading than do the hard work of examining scripture ourselves. It's easy to let someone else give us the tools to follow Jesus better rather than opening our Bibles or joining a study group. But we have to be cautious. Not everything you hear or read gets everything right. Knowing scripture, really being familiar with it can help you raise red flags while you're reading a book or even listening to a sermon. This is what the Berean Jews are doing. They are not just taking Paul's word for it. They are seeking the scriptures to see if what Paul tells them is so, is true. They are looking to the witness of scripture to see if Paul's witness corresponds. If you read or hear something that contradicts scripture, and it doesn't matter who says it, even from this pulpit, if that statement contradicts scripture, it is a lie. Even Satan could quote scripture. We need to be watchful and examine the truth. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how examining scriptures, really diving in deeply and consistently can help you discern the truth. The first example is easy. It's the kind of thing that crops up every now and then. In 2011, Harold Camping announced that the rapture and the judgment of the world would occur on May 21st, 2011. I know we're all still here, right? You may remember driving around and seeing billboards warning of the impending date. People who believed him quit their jobs, sold their homes, stopped saving money for the future. And when Anna was who was about 10, saw one of these billboard signs from the backseat of my car. She said, Mommy, how do they know when the end of the world is coming? Doesn't the Bible say that even Jesus doesn't know that? Why, yes, it does, Anna. And how did Anna know that? Well, she was given a Bible by her grandparents when she was about seven. She was a voracious reader, just like her parents. And so she started with the Gospels and the Psalms and then worked her way up to the Old Testament. And Paul's letters, Anna had been reading her Bible and studying it and asking me some very hard questions, which is why even though she was 10, she knew that it was impossible for Harold Camping to know the date of the end of the world because the Bible said no one would know that information. My second example deals more with a Christian book that many of my millennial friends might have read. How many of you have been listening to the podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Anybody? All right. Um, in that series, Mike Cosper does an interview with Josh Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye in 1997, when he was only 21 years old. Though he had a hugely successful book promoted by many evangelical churches in the height of the purity movement in 2019, Harris announced that he and his wife were divorcing and that he no longer considered himself a Christian. But I don't blame Josh Harris for his book. I think he was earnestly trying to follow Jesus and live more purely for him. But I do blame the promotion machine behind the success of his book for not looking closely at what he had to say. They were so interested in pushing a message of sexual purity among the youth, and let's be honest, selling books, that they didn't look too closely at the problems with promoting courting or blaming women for man's lust. Desiring purity and pursuing a celibate lifestyle out of love for God and a desire to follow him closely is a good thing. Vows of chastity and poverty have been common in Christian communities 
since Paul endorsed singleness. The New Testament actually prioritizes singleness and celibacy over marriage. So what was wrong with the book? I think Harris summed it up best in a 2017 TEDx talk. Fear is never a good motive. Fear of messing up, fear of getting your heart broken, fear of hurting somebody else, fear of sex. There are clear things and statements in scripture about our sexuality being expressed within the covenant of marriage. But that doesn't mean that dating is somehow wrong or a certain way of dating is the only way to do things. I think that's where people get into danger. We have God's word, but then it's so easy to add all this other stuff to protect people, to control people, to make sure that you don't get anywhere near that place where you could go off course. And I think that's where the problems arise. The problem with the book was adding rules to the ones that are already in scripture. And adding rules leads to legalism, and legalism leads to shame for those who can't keep the extra rules and pride for those who do keep them. It's a really tricky balance. Spiritual disciplines are good. They turn us mentally and emotionally toward the light, to use Drew's term, and they help us listen better. But when spiritual disciplines become a checklist, an idol, a way for getting God to owe us something, then we have ended up in the same place as the Pharisees did. We are doing it to get something rather than out of love for the Lord and a desire to please him. He wants a heart change. That's why Jesus focused on lust, the root of the sin of adultery. He is calling us to a kind of sexual and personal integrity that goes beyond our actions, to the thoughts and desires behind our actions and to how we view our fellow brothers and sisters. He is also calling us to repent and confess those sins. And he promises mercy and forgiveness in our brokenness. So how can we position ourselves more toward the light so we can experience that change of heart? I think one of the best ways to get a heart transformation is through regular exposure to God's holy word. The more we read it and understand it, the more it changes us to see the world and others as Jesus does. When we read about Jesus' tenderness to the woman caught in adultery, or touching a man with leprosy, or leading a blind man by the hand, how can we not begin to feel more compassion for those who are hurting around us? Reading the Bible also helps us understand who God is, how much he loves us, and who we are as his children. By reading and examining scripture, we can examine ourselves too, our hearts and minds, our community, our beliefs. And so now what? I can hear some of you thinking to yourselves, well, that's a really long way, Ashley, of telling us we should read the Old Testament and the Bible every day. And how does this fit in with the sermon series? I'm so glad you asked. Both Benjamin and Buddy pose the idea that at the heart of any mission is Jesus Christ. Benjamin said that all ministry must be understood as being founded upon God's grace and faithfully exercised in participation in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And Buddy focused too on how the power of the gospel disrupts and transforms wherever it is preached. It should disrupt and transform us too. 
And through the witness of Luke, we can read about it and wrestle with it together. We can witness to each other the transformative power of the gospel. And we can also examine the witness of the Old Testament and the New to see if what we are told is true. I'm proposing that continue on our mission of being sent out ones, apostles, we must be equipped through examining and investigating the scriptures. As the writer of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, the joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I want to end with this prayer um, for inner renewal through the word, and I'd like you to pray it with me. Gracious God and most merciful Father, you have granted us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit that the same word may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect dwelling place of your Christ, sanctifying and increasing in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.